Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we declare your name. And there's no name above your name, Lord. And so, Lord, receive all worship. And we know you're here with us, so will you teach us by your Holy Spirit? Please be with me and my brothers and sisters and even those listening in. That, Lord, you will speak straight into our hearts, Lord. And you will direct us and you will guide us. And may all things bring you all glory, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's start with something light before we address a rather heavy topic. This guy wrote a letter to his wife, and this is how it reads. Dear wife, I'm writing you this letter to tell you that I'm leaving you forever. I've been a good man to you for seven years, and I have nothing to show for it. These last two weeks have been hell. Your boss called to tell me that you quit your job today, and that was the last straw. Last week, you came home and didn't even notice that I had a new haircut. I had cooked your favorite meal and even wore a brand new pair of silk boxes. You ate in two minutes and went straight to sleep after watching all of your soaps. You don't tell me you love me anymore. You don't want sex or anything that connects us as husband and wife. Either you're cheating on me or you don't love me anymore. Whatever the case, I'm gone. Signed, your ex-husband. P.S. Don't try to find me. Your sister and I are moving away to West Virginia together. Have a great life. So there was a letter that he wrote to his wife. And soon after that, he receives a reply. Dear ex-husband, nothing has made my day more than receiving your letter. It's true you and I have been married for seven years. Although a good man is a far cry from what you've been. I watch my soaps so much because they drown out your constant whining and griping. Too bad that doesn't work. I did notice when you got a haircut last week. But the first thing that came to mind was, you look just like a girl. Since my mother asked me and raised me not to say anything if I can't say something nice, I didn't comment. And when you cooked my favorite meal, you must have gotten me confused with my sister because I stopped eating pork seven years ago. About those new silk boxes, I turned away from you because the $49.99 price tag was still on them. And I prayed it was a coincidence that my sister had just borrowed $50 from me that morning. After all of this, I still loved you and felt we could work it out. So when I hit the lotto for $10 million, I quit my job and bought us two tickets to Jamaica. But when I got home, you were gone. Everything happens for a reason, I guess. I hope you have the fulfilling life you always wanted. My lawyer said that the letter you wrote ensures you won't get a dime from me. So take care. Signed, your ex-wife. Rich as hell and free. P.S. I don't know if I ever told you this, but my sister Carla was born Carl. I hope that's not a problem. I thought it would be good to start with something light-hearted. Tonight's topic is a heavy one. And from this point forth, you know, we're going to get into the title called The Divorce Dilemma. But as we do that, let's look at an article that came out today, published by Channel News Asia. I know the text is a little bit small, but what it says in the headline is, more are getting divorced and actually fewer are getting married in Singapore. But perhaps you want to know some of the highlights. The median age of divorce was about 42.9 years old for men and 38.8 for women. Marriages also are not lasting as long. Now divorces are happening at about the 10-year mark. Among the civil divorces, the largest group was couples who were married for five to nine years. So that's the, the average is about 10 years. But the largest group is between five to nine years. This is followed by those who are married for 20 years or longer, and this accounts for 21.3%, um, and they notice that older marriages are breaking down. And I guess we can understand why, because often the couple stays together because of the children. And once the children are all grown up, 
they feel there's nothing else to you know, be living for or there's no need to be staying together anymore. Let's, uh, let's go our separate ways. Let's look at another observation. More than half of the plaintiffs in civil divorces cited unreasonable behavior as the main reason for divorce. 42.6% cited having lived apart or separated for three years or more. And this has been consistent for a while now. In 60 plus percent of the cases, the divorce was initiated by the women. Now take note of this, because this evening we're going to go into this topic called divorce. And we ask ourselves, are Christians allowed to divorce? Is that a yes or is it a no? Before we answer that, we recognize and we acknowledge that divorce is a very, very big issue and is becoming an even bigger problem in Singapore and all over the world. It is also very controversial. It is a dilemma. But say what you like. You see, every person that's seated here and even listening in, divorce affects all of us. You may not be directly involved in a divorce, but we know someone who is divorced. You may have gone through a divorce. You may be contemplating one, I don't know. You may know someone who knows someone who's affected. You may know a child, whatever it is, you know. Divorce today has become so much a part of our lives today. And that's why this topic is very important for us to get into. It's not an easy one. The answer to this question, can Christians divorce, yes or no? The answer is not quite as straightforward, I assure you, as we will discover. And so I want Scripture to guide us. We will read Scripture tonight and we will comment on it. Now at the end of this teaching, you may or you may not agree. And that is okay. I will not be offended. It's no problem at all. Because theologians don't agree. Scholars don't agree. Pastors don't agree. I want to encourage you to be a Berean. Don't be a Pharisee. Whether you agree or if you do not agree, be a Berean, a Christian that would go into Scriptures to see if it was so and come to your own conclusion and to your own point of view so that there's a basis why you would say yes or why you would say no. So let's go to our text this evening. We are in the book of Matthew. We're still in chapter 5. We are plodding through the Sermon on the Mount. We've gone through the introduction. You have not heard this. Then I encourage you to get into the recordings so that there is foundation and there's groundwork for you to build this teaching on. Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 to 32. Furthermore, it's been said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. The very first thing that we have to establish is that these two verses do not stand alone. These two verses are a continuation of the same topic. In other words, we could have entitled today's teaching, Deal with Last First, Part 2. Jesus says, furthermore. Now you know in the previous verses, He had been teaching about, you shall not commit adultery. And then He goes straight for the intents of the heart. He was talking and exposing lust. Unfortunately, in most Bibles, you will find a section head. And it's entitled there, Divorce, or something like that. So we think it's a separate topic. Let's remember, it's a continuation of the teaching that started a few verses ahead. I also mentioned previously that Jesus gave six examples of, you have heard it said, and, but I say to you. So technically, it should be five examples if you put these two parts together and not six examples. Once we understand this, we realize that Jesus was not teaching specifically about divorce. He wasn't addressing divorce directly in these two 
verses. He was talking about adultery and about lust. And he used divorce as one more illustration. He will address, of course, divorce later on in Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 to 12. Why is this important for us to know? Because if you look at these two verses and think that Jesus was teaching about divorce, then you would isolate and think that only these two verses, you can make a case whether you can or you cannot divorce. Having established that, and since Jesus does talk a little bit about divorce, we will address that issue of divorce. But we will not just take these two verses, we will consult also the other verses that we find in the Bible. Oftentimes, when we look at a topic or we try to address an issue, we, we, we jump in straight and try to answer that question. But for us to fully understand divorce and why it's there, we have to back up a little bit. We have to get back to our original design. You have to put on your reverse gear, you have to go stun all the way back to Genesis. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, it is recorded for us, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This is the very first verse that describes the marriage, the union between man and woman. And because it happened at that point in Genesis, we know this is God's design, His original intent. That when two people come together, the man and the woman, they shall become one flesh. And in Matthew chapter 19, verse 6, Jesus quotes this one verse and he embellishes it. He adds on with one more phrase. Therefore, he concludes, since the two shall become one flesh, therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. And here we see that first sort of a hint or reference to not the word divorce, but it's talking about separation. Amen? So if we look at the original design and the intent, can we safely conclude first about marriage? That in God's original design and intent, marriage is not to be violated. It should not be separated. And we can extend and infer as such, obviously, God is not for divorce. I think we have no problem with that conclusion. But the story doesn't end there. We know that there was a fall. And when sin entered the human race, of course through Adam and through Eve, the first marital couple and union, we see that there was a curse that was pronounced and to the woman, God said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow, your conception in pain, you shall bring forth children. And there was this line, your desire shall be for your husband, he shall rule over you. Now that one line begins to define or at least explain what would happen in the years to come. After the fall, where it's no longer that beautiful condition that God has placed both man and woman in, Man now rules over woman. And the woman was being subjected to men. This relationship of man and woman, that relationship that put them together, that they become one flesh, that was violated. That was adulterated. Where they were both created equal in the image of God because of this pronouncement. There is an inequality that came into the relationship. And now the man rules over the woman and the woman somehow falls under this rulership of man. Very quickly, it's no longer just one man and one woman. By the time we get to Genesis chapter 4, we see polygamy already in place. It was one man, two women, and then three women and four women. And you have harems and concubines and mates because of this one statement. Even to the point when we look at Abram, we know he was married to Sarai, but because of the culture and whatever had happened, it was also okay for him to have relations with Hagar. 
Jacob had two wives and he had two maids. And out of these four women, then he had the 12 sons. And that's why every time someone looks at me and says, you have seven children, aren't you going to have 12? I said, I will need one more wife and two more maids. <laughs> I forgot this is recorded. I hope Serene doesn't listen to this. <laughs> right? By the time it comes to David, isn't it interesting? David, a man after God's own heart, he did not just have one wife. He had more than one. Of course, we know what happened to Solomon. If you can't handle one wife, two wives is tough, three is tough. How many hundreds did he have, right? And that's why he started out well. He didn't end very well. Moral of the story, one woman is good. Because of this situation, and obviously God would know this, divorce was worked into the law. It was included. In Deuteronomy chapter 24, from verses 1 to 4, and let's read that. It says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in her eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. When she has departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, if the latter husband detests her and writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her as his wife, then her former husband who divorced her must not take her back to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Because of the fall, because of the condition, because of what's happening now, when God brings His people out, He already knows the situation. He says, I'm going to put this clause of divorce into the Mosaic law. Jesus later would declare, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. But you can argue with me, but, but God gave the law. If God gave the law, so does it mean that God is thus for divorce? Now this sort of blows our mind, right? Because we see in original design, God is not for divorce. Later on, He gives the law and He puts a clause inside there, which means then God is for divorce. So which is which? How do we understand this? And I think this is where we have to go into a little bit of detail to understand what we had just read. Point number one about divorce from Deuteronomy or from the Old Testament is we have to see that it is a concession. At a point in time, the men could divorce their wives, but the wives could not divorce their husbands. It was like a one-way street. And so the divorce clause or that provision was given as a concession. And we're not to look at it so much as a permission, although that word is that, yes, Moses permitted you to divorce. It's not so much giving you permission to divorce, it was really a concession in the law so that there could be protection. This law was given to protect the woman. If you remember what you, we had just read, if the man finds no favor suddenly because of uncleanness that is found upon this woman, the wife, he can write her a certificate of divorce. Now this is a very broad statement, eh? as we will notice later on. What happened through the years was that because of this one clause, for any little thing, the man would issue a certificate of divorce and he marries someone else. So according to the law, he was still monogamous, but what had resulted was serial monogamy. All right, so if you listen to that, and as a woman, that's bad news. Ultra bad news. And that's why God put in this concession to say, look, you can divorce, but only on this one condition. This condition of uncleanness, or indecency, or immorality. The onus was on the man to prove this uncleanness. And if 
the person is um, sent away, this woman is sent away to protect her again, he's not allowed to remarry her, sort of like after she has gone through a musical chairs kind of stuff, and every husband has pushed her away, he's not supposed to take her back again. It's also to protect the woman. See, so point number one, this is a concession. It's not so much to be seen as a permission, but it was for protection. It was also given, as we had read, because of the hardness of man's heart. God already knew this. Can you imagine if the law had said strictly no divorce? What would have happened? Let me give you an example. I was going to speak to a group of people from the Philippines. It was a Filipino congregation on marriage and divorce. For my research, I googled and I tried to check the divorce rate for Philippines. And to my surprise, the divorce rate was zero. I said, wow, these guys are good, man. And I couldn't understand. Of course, I couldn't believe it. And so I spoke to the pastors and the leaders and they said, of course it's zero because divorce is not allowed. In that nation, because it's seen as a Christian Catholic nation, divorce is not allowed. It's very, it's very strict. But what resulted? Although it's no divorce, the man could only, or the marriage can only be annulled. But it costs too much to annul a marriage. So they just leave it like it is, and they leave their wives. And they just sleep around all over the place. And this is what happened. With the hardness of man's heart, although you will say, no divorce, they will find a way around it. And they will just blatantly keep to the law of no divorce, but they will sleep around, they will not annul their marriages, and they will have multiple partners, and the situation is even worse. Right? So just because someone stays married doesn't mean that the marriage is alive. So this was given because of the hardness of heart. God knows that in certain situations, and especially that which he gave as a clause, the marriage can be separated or there can be divorce. But what is this clause called uncleanness? It actually refers to something that was done before marriage. This one word actually refers to fornication or sexual immorality that was previously found out before the marriage, not during the marriage, not after they are married. And there's a clause in the Bible, in the law, that says that if a man marries this woman and later finds out that she's not the virgin and she, has, she had not been chased, that she had been fooling around and she can prove that, then the law allows for that. You see that? Okay? And the woman can be removed and not only that, there will be a death penalty even. But the problem with this one word is that along the way it became difficult to determine or to define and the definition actually varied from sect to sect. What is unclean? No one knew anymore. They started to create their own rules and give their own definition. And as a result, the system became abused. And this is a problem with the law in that sense because if you want to find a loophole, you can always find it. And so Israel abused this system before the exile. And even after, when they returned to the land, they also abused the system. But in their minds, they think, I have not divorced, or at least I have not done it in the wrong way. Uh, I have not committed adultery, but they have abused the system. Now what did they do when they came back? They divorced their own wives and they began to marry the people in the land or foreign wives. And this was picked up by, in the books of Ezra as well as Nehemiah. And that gives you also another context for that very famous one line that we find in Malachi chapter 2, verse 16, that God hates divorce. Now you cannot just take those three words and form a case or a theology for yourself, or a teaching for yourself. Those three words are very specific in the context of what Israel themselves had done. They had put their wives away so that they can take other foreign wives. I think this background is important for us to understand. That we have original intent, we have the fall, the result of the fall that brings us even to the reason for the Mosaic law and why divorce is in it. Having presented this to you, 
we can now then move to what Jesus says. Because Jesus used those words again. It has been said, whoever divorces his wife, all you need to do is give her a certificate of divorce. And that's cool. But he says, I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery and whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. What did we just say just now? That the subject matter, please remember, it's still about adultery and still about lust. Jesus was addressing the abuse of the system. When a man lusted after this woman and wanted to make her as his wife, conveniently, he finds fault with his own wife, issues her a certificate of divorce, and marries this next woman. They used it as a means to change wives. Technically, they may not have committed adultery, but Jesus points this out. He went straight right into their hearts. As long as you last for another woman, you are already adulterous. And so you're not supposed to do that. Jesus knew exactly what they were doing. They were just throwing their wives out. Then you ask, but why that second clause? Whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Of course. Jesus was pointing out that the woman, the wife, did not want to break this marriage. She does not want out from this. But you pushed her out. As far as God is concerned, she is still married to you. You have done it for all the wrong intent. And because she's married to you, then you have caused her to commit adultery. And since she's still married, then whoever marries her now with lustful intent would also be deemed as committing adultery. I'm sure this was very, very painful for the audience who heard Jesus at that point in time. They knew exactly what He was talking about. Unlike us, when we listen to this, we're like, huh? What does this even mean, right? But for the people at that point in time, imagine the reaction of every man. I believe, you know, they were squirming in their seats. Jesus was upholding the law, but at the same time, He was exposing the heart. The Pharisees interpreted in one way, and that resulted in so many divorces, but Jesus gives the correct interpretation. It's all about lust. And if you don't deal with your lust, you're going to use the law as the loophole inside there, giving you permission to divorce, and you are committing serial adultery. And so they use the law for their own selfish desires, and we have to ask ourselves, are we doing the same today also? Jesus clarifies actually Deuteronomy chapter 24 verses 1 to 4 where that word some uncleanness was used. Jesus used this one word pornea and that word translated sexual immorality can also be translated fornication but it's broader than just fornication. It can be bestiality, it can be homosexuality, any kind of sexual indecency. But that word pornea is different from the word moikeia. And moikeia is the word that's used to be translated adultery. And why the two different terms? Because I believe he was really talking about two different things. So it says, if you divorce for any reason except sexual immorality or fornication, you cause her to commit adultery. It's, it won't sound right if it says, if you divorce your wife for... A, any reason except adultery, you cause her to commit adultery. doesn't make sense. And so people today who say, oh, you know, um, my wife or my husband committed adultery. There you see, cause for divorce. I don't think Jesus was talking about this. He was referring to fornication. Because if a woman was already adulterous, she cannot be made to commit adultery. And so we understand that porneia is something or an activity that is done before marriage. In other words, it does not refer to marital unfaithfulness in this case. If it's bestiality, you may have a case. If it's homosexuality, you have the case. 
but it's not referring to adultery, at least technically. And I believe Jesus knew and understood this word called fornication because in his own situation, he had to encounter the scorn or at least the back chat that was happening or that had happened in his neighborhood. Remember, there's a verse that was recorded where the people sort of insinuated that, you know, we are not children of fornication. We were not born out of fornication, suggesting that Jesus was a child that was conceived out of wedlock and out of fornication. And Joseph, being a just man, wanted to put Mary away because of this one clause. If Mary was found out, then she would be stoned to death. Interestingly, let's not miss the parallel mentions in Luke chapter 16, verse 18, as well as Mark chapter 10, verses 11 and 12. We won't turn there. But those are parallel mentions of this whole issue about divorce. But the interesting observation there is, this phrase, except for sexual immorality, is not mentioned. Okay, it just says that whoever divorces his wife causes her to commit adultery, whoever marries her commits adultery. There's no clause. So you can't even go to these passages to say that there's a reason or there's a permission for divorce. Another interesting point, Luke and Mark were both written to Gentiles. So, sorry Gentiles, you don't even have a loophole clause to hold on to. So the principle here is simply Jesus narrows that exception down very clearly to fornication is inappropriate sexual conduct or activity before marriage. Now this is quite serious, right? Because I have, we have to ask a question here. If we go by this definition, how many Christians who have already violated this today? I'm talking about before marriage. Okay. And when Jesus is pressed for an answer about divorce, in Matthew chapter 19, verse 3, the Pharisees came to him, testing him, saying to him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? Now by the time it came to Jesus' day, there were two schools, you know, there's, there's a Hillel school, which is a lenient school, and a Shammai, uh, school of Shammai, which was a strict interpretation. The followers of Shammai or Rabbi Shammai was very strict and they kept very, very narrow to sexual immorality as a reason or a clause for divorce. Whereas Hillel would have interpreted a little bit more broadly, more lenient, to actually say that anything, you know, if you, if you don't make the bed properly, the husband can send you away. If you burn the breakfast, if you talk too loudly, if you forget to wear your makeup, you know, any reason. You know, so it's any, that's why the Pharisees were asking, can we, do, can we divorce for just any reason? They were trying to trap Jesus because if Jesus said yes, he would affirm one. If he said no, he would affirm the other. And you've got to learn from Jesus. He doesn't answer yes or no. He goes back to what God says. Right? He goes back into, right back to original design. He says, look, from the beginning, this is not so. And then they say, but Moses allowed us. They say, you want to know the reason? It's the hardness of your heart. That's the whole reason. But if you will go back to God's intent, this is not to be so. He condemns the current practice. And he upholds the law. He says, look, marriage, this is what, it, this is what you really want to know what God says? You want to please God? You want to obey God? Marriage is for life. And here comes a famous line by the disciples in the Singlish translation. Ayo, like that, very difficult there. You remember? The, the, the disciples says, if, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. Because they had already gotten so used to it that no, if I don't like this woman, I can just change, I can just change, I can get out of that marriage. But the moment Jesus explains it, the disciples goes, what, jalat? We are stuck, man. And Jesus never disputed that because this is God's original intent. You want a side principle here? Whenever you talk about divorce, friends, 
Don't start with divorce. If you're struggling or if your friends are struggling with something like that, you know, don't start with divorce. Always start with what God says. Go back to our original design. Bring them back into that situation. So I've taken you from Genesis. We've gone into the Old Testament, understanding the place of divorce, how it has been abused. We come to the day of Jesus. Does it end there? I think you're still having questions, right? So can or cannot? Yes or no? If, if Jesus had the last word, perhaps we might conclude. It's very narrow. This is the exception only. And it's, it's so hard and so difficult, you might as well just be convinced marriage is for life. God just does not want divorce at all. Full stop. But we have got to go to another part of the Bible and ask ourselves, what does Paul say? And Paul, who imitates the Christ, who loves Jesus, who understands the law, also inspired the Holy Spirit, wrote a percentage of the New Testament. He addresses this in some detail in the book of 1 Corinthians. Let me categorize for you in just two groups. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 and 11, he addresses very specifically, now to the merit I command. So he looks at the church these are all believers. To the married I command. Yet not I, but the Lord. A wife is not to depart from her husband. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. So let's summarize. Paul is saying, guys, now you know Jesus, stay married. No divorce. No remarriage. If you want a divorce, no remarriage. If you can't tahan, then get back together. Reconcile. Because this is how the marriage is to be. Those are the words of Paul. There's another passage which is a little bit longer. But in verse 12, he says, But to the rest I, not the Lord, say this. If any brother has a wife who does not believe, and she's willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he's willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. And then he goes on and he says, But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases. But God has called us to peace. What's Paul saying for a believer as well as an unbeliever who is involved in a marriage. He said, well, now you've come to know Jesus, but your husband or your wife is not a believer. He says, don't dump him or her. Stay married. That's number one. Don't divorce. But if they initiate it, and they leave you, and they don't want you anymore because you love Jesus, then it's okay. You are not in bondage. and You're no longer bound. In that case, divorce is permissible, if the spouse leaves and you're regarded since you're no longer under that bondage you're considered as free and single and now you can remarry i know life doesn't happen so clearly in these two categories but here suddenly paul allows divorce in a certain situation and there's just so many questions and so many other permutations and possibilities that can happen within these two categories. For example, people have always asked this, what about, what if my, my husband is a believer, or my wife, whichever it is, you know, if my spouse is totally irresponsible, what if he's a jerk? What if he does, you know, he drinks and he, he doesn't bring back money and things like that? Do you know there's a clause somewhere in Timothy that says that whoever does not provide for his household is worse than an unbeliever. In other words, he's treated like an unbeliever. And so if he is like an unbeliever and he leaves you and deserts you, does it mean that this second category comes into play? You see, there's so many permutations, so many things. So Paul gives some of these points here. But I want us to remember that as he teaches about marriage or about the the, the possibility of divorce. He talks to the married people as well. He talks to the single people. 
you realize it's not the institution of marriage or the issue of divorce that he's really highlighting. He's saying whether you are married or whether you are single, whatever your relationship might be, he's always saying, serve the Lord wholeheartedly. And I believe that's a side point that is important for us to understand. Just a side note. We come back to this one question again. So divorce. So how? Is it a yes or it is a no? It's not as straightforward, am I correct? As you look at all of these things, there are just so many ways that we can understand something like that. And so for the rest of this time, can I share with you some pastoral principles? And this is where I stand on some of these things. I hope it helps you. But if you disagree, I'm okay with that. But let Scripture be the basis. Very quickly, the first thing is, deal with last first. If you have not heard last week's message, go and listen to it. Pastorally, I think if we can learn how to deal with lust, that we can recognize the root problem of lust, and how today we have been so desensitized and even encouraged by media and the society and the values that we are unconsciously imbibing. Pastorally, this is the first thing you must deal with. If you don't nip this first, then you open the way for things like adultery, for fornication, and you begin to break certain principles that God has, that He has put within the law. See, one of the challenges that we all face is that in the eyes of the law, I'm talking about civil law, adultery and fornication, they are not considered a crime. You can sleep with 20 women or 20 men, the government is not going to arrest you. And that's our problem. But if you are a Christian and you understand the Word of God, Paul says, all things are lawful for me. In other words, in the eyes of the law, you may not be breaking that law. But all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me. In other words, I can do it and not get caught by the law. But I will not be brought under the power of any. And he was talking about food and he was talking about sexual immorality in that passage. So point number one, go listen to last week's message, deal with lust. If you're struggling with any sexual sin, if you're struggling with something that you know you need help, Come to terms with it. Come to the Lord and ask Jesus and ask the Holy Spirit to help you in this area. The second point is this. Work on your marriage. Before you even talk about divorce, work on your marriage. And I think we've got to help our younger couples understand this, that you have to work at the marriage. I like it when someone wrote this article how soulmate nonsense is destroying Christian marriages. And I'll say it openly as it stop the soulmate nonsense. Where we are telling the young people, God has created one special person for you. And you've got to find this one special person. And if you miss this one special person, then you will never be happy. You'll never be fulfilled. What's the problem with this soulmate understanding? It sets you up to look for this one person when you are unhappy in your marriage. The moment you have a problem in your marriage, you're wondering, maybe this was not the one. Maybe this is not that soulmate. And I have come across people, really, who have left, literally, and used that two words, soulmate. Why are you divorcing? Why are you leaving your wife? No, because this person now is now my soulmate. It does not make sense. It is not biblical. We have to stop looking for the perfect spouse because the spouse that you have is perfect for bringing you to perfection. I'm serious. You think about this, right? The kind of working that you need to go through, the long-suffering sometimes, that's to train you towards your own perfection. And so marriage is the most important decision after giving a life to Jesus. Choose well, decide well, get godly counsel. Don't go and read those magazines on how to choose a bride or how to choose a husband. And we should stop teaching that at our youth ministries too. And I think we have to tell people that they have one shot at marriage, that's it. We have to preach that one line that, you know, uh, Jesus had shared with the disciples. They go, ayo, this one very chalat. I say, yeah, is that serious? 
once you're in, you do your very, very best. You have to work on the marriage. You have to know your assignments as husband and as wife. You have to learn how to communicate. You have to learn how to manage money because these are the two biggest issues in every breakdown of marriages. It's communication and it's finance. Of course, there are other things. If you have an unbelieving or a backslidden spouse, hear this clearly, all the more you need to shine for Jesus. Because Paul says, you win them over by your actions, not by your words. Have you realized? You cannot nag anyone into the kingdom. There's no way you can do that. But you can love them into the kingdom. So work on marriage. Pastorally, this is what we need to share with our people and we have to help the people move on this. The third thing is, don't use divorce as a convenient backdoor of escape. I like to say this, if you, if you think there's a backdoor somewhere, lock that door, throw away the key, build a wall over it, paint it so nicely you can't even find it. I mean, this is how you're going to get into a marriage, right? You should stop looking for that back door. It shouldn't be there in the first place. And be careful when you fight with one another, and couples do fight. Your words can be extremely callous. Because when you get upset, that D word comes out. You use it to threaten one another. And you be careful because when the D word is used long enough, one day it shall be D day. And you're prophesying over yourself, and you're giving yourself that option. The more you talk about it, the more you will think about it. Don't use it as a convenient door of escape. As we have learned about this permission of divorce, do you realize it's really God's means of grace for a fallen people? It is not His quick fix solution for something you don't like. And so we have to help people understand this. I don't say it's always easy. We've counseled people in marriages, in difficult relationships. Some can be very dire. I've spoken with others, with people with sexual sins. Husband visiting prostitutes. Confesses, says sorry, does it again. How do you help someone like that? Do you tell the wife immediately, divorce no? Jesus, they can what? How do you help them? How do you walk them through? And if you are in a relationship before all these problems, to the younger people, we will ask them to do this. Identify older couples. Look for couples that you respect, that you can learn from them and have permission that any time when they face a certain struggle or a certain fight, that they will be able to talk to these older couples. Once they start to get a little of trouble or, or problems or you know, a first sign of cracks in the relationship, what's the kingdom principle? It's always seeking to restore and to reconcile. Am I correct? You go back and check your Bibles. When Jesus was asked about divorce in Matthew chapter 19, go read chapter 18. Do you know what Jesus was talking about? Forgiveness. And if we can learn how to forgive one another, I believe there will be a lot more restoration and reconciliation for marriages. If there's infidelity, if there's unfaithfulness, I tell you that it will take time to counsel, it will take time to heal, it will take time to trust again, and it will take a journey. They need someone to stand with them and to walk with them. The fifth thing we must ask ourselves is, do we have new hearts or do we still have hardened hearts? See, the moment we look for divorce, we look for that clause, we look for that reason, we look for a way out. Then what we are saying is, Lord, we want to go under that law again. Okay? You, you give us permission to do that. And Jesus explained it so openly. Do you know why that law is there? It's because of the hardness of hearts. That's why it's there. And it's there to protect someone. And so if you are believers, do we have new hearts? By the Holy Spirit, are we born again? Yes, we are. And so technically, we all have new hearts. And if we have new hearts, a new heart of flesh, no longer a heart of stone, why then do we look for a law that's given for hardness of hearts? It just doesn't make any sense. 
So if we say we have new hearts and we are born again in the Spirit, then we have to be truly led and then changed by the Spirit. And if that's the case, we don't talk divorce so quickly. Because the Spirit is always a Spirit of reconciliation, love, long-suffering, self-control. Pastorally, we have to understand the Spirit of the law. See, every time we look for something inside there, to justify ourselves or to justify our actions, I think we go back under the letter of the law. So if I tell you yes by the letter or no by the letter, do you know it's going to kill someone? Right? One party may be happy, the other party might die. Someone else might be suffering. Maybe both the husband and wife very happy, then the children die. You go by the letter of the law, something is going to die. It's going to kill. It's going to bring some condemnation somewhere. And if you really want to go by the letter, do you know many of us should be put away? How many of us can stand up to that clause or, you know, the way that the law is described? Even there will be many in the church that should not even be married in the first place. So if you go for a strict yes and a strict no, big problems. If you go by the letter of the law, many reasons that Christians give for divorce don't even fall within the biblical parameters in the first place. It says the biggest point is irreconcilable differences, right? I mean, that's so broad, right? You like red, I like blue. Cannot reconcile? Divorce. You want to go under the law? You cannot. Not allowed. We don't meet up to any one of these. It will kill. But if we understand and go back to the spirit of the law, that's what Jesus was here to interpret, right? What was that law given for? It was a concession for the purpose of protection. It's not to be abused. It was for protection. It was to preserve. And the spirit of the law, you know, is encapsulated. It's one word called love. And it's always to bring life. And there's a means of God's grace that is always within, even in that law that we deem as hard and harsh. And so pastorally, if I understand the spirit of the law, if I were to counsel a couple, if you were to walk with a couple, if lives are in danger, alarm bells must go off. Amen? If a spouse is being abused, alarm bells have to go off. You cannot start to think yes or no, you know. The letter says this, the laws. Wait, hang on, hang on, chop, you know. The spirit of the law is to protect, is to bring life. What if she's sexually abused? How about emotional blackmail and abuse? Harder to discern, right? Not so easy, right? What if one party deserts, leaves? Today, technically, they separate for three years, then easier to get, lah. But what if one really deserts and, and leaves and never, never comes back? And you tell this person, no, marriage is forever. How do, you, how do you administer life in this way? What if, like we said, it, was a, it is an irresponsible spouse, worse than an unbeliever? Was this person ever a believer in the first place? It's very, very hard to ascertain. What is the spirit of the law? Will we be able to allow divorce in such a case to save that person, to save the children from harm and abuse? Please don't hear this and think I'm endorsing divorce. (laughs) I am not, I assure you. Our key principle is original design and intent. But you and I know also, although we are saved and we should be living at that level, we don't. And that's why we struggle as pastors or as counsellors And we have to tread very, very carefully. Because you can be as biblically accurate, you want to be as correct as you possibly can be in the spirit of the law. I can tell you that the person seeking counsel may just be wanting to hear you say, yes, and then they tell. Pastor say yes. They'll go to as many people to collect as many surveys and they have majority vote. Pastor say yes. It's not quite as straightforward. And that's why it's a dilemma for us to navigate this. Last and not least, of course, what's the role of the church? 
Now, when I say the role of the church, please don't immediately think of your pastor and the church worker and the professional counselor. The reason you are here is because sometimes your assignment might just be to counsel or to stand with or to walk with couples who are going through a very, very difficult patch. I think as a church, collectively, we are better at judging than we are at loving. And so the first thing we do when we hear someone is divorced, immediately we form an impression. We begin to condemn this person. You see, deserve it, ma. Another divorce, second divorce, oh, lucky deserve it. Right? And then we, we begin to stereotype the certain person. And I think you can go for as many Bible studies as one, but as long as you live like that and respond like that, I think we live beneath the expectation of our king. We're told to help widows and to help orphans. What about single mothers? What about single fathers today? Do we really believe that the work of Jesus upon the cross is sufficient for everyone? Why do we still look at divorcees or people who are going through such situations with double standards? If we believe Jesus can save prostitutes and tax collectors, can He not save those who have divorced? Yes? Is there grace enough for these people to be accepted back into the community that we can treat them as one of ours also? See, I don't have clear answers for you, but I believe if we would deal with these points, and not all of us may find every point applicable to us, but if you would just get into one or two or three of these things in an area where the Lord is prompting you, perhaps the divorce rate in the church might be lower. I think we have to accept something, you know, that in the days ahead, the number of divorcees or divorced cases or might the percentage might grow in the church, not because marriages are breaking down, because if we believe and we can move on this, we can help more divorcees become part of the body of Christ. And in that, the percentage might go up. But God's grace, I believe, is sufficient still for all of us. So let's conclude. And let me share with you two women. And the first woman, we know her very well. She's called the Samaritan woman at the well. By the time Jesus bumps into her, or she bumps into Jesus. She had already had five husbands, and the one that she was with was not her husband. The beautiful thing is that Jesus addressed a thirst in this woman, right? He says, you can take this water, but you still be thirsty, but don't you know that this is the one here, springs of living water. And I believe the relationships in the church will continue to be thirsty and dry if we ourselves don't find Jesus as our number one relationship. Whether you are married or whether you are single, the acceptance and the affirmation that we're looking for can only be found in Jesus. And this is the one big thing that is important. The second woman is the one who's caught in adultery. And with a woman caught in adultery, Jesus never disputed the adulterous act at all. And I know we love the words of Jesus at the end, right? When He said, Neither do I condemn you. But let us not miss the second phrase. Go and sin no more. Let's recognize that Jesus neither condemned nor condoned. I think today we tend to, to swing one extreme to another. Is it correct? Yes. No, it's not correct. No. No, we're not condemning these people. We should not condemn. But in not condemning, it also does not mean that we will condone. That's important to make a statement. The question is, did these continue in their lifestyle or did they change after encountering Jesus? And the thing is, I don't really know because the Bible is really silent about this. In handling all these kind of relationship challenges, we don't want to condemn, we're not condoning, but I love the words of Jesus at the end also. He says, go and sin no more. I think that's the key. Like the woman at the well, she became an evangelist overnight. I always wonder, did she break up with the men? Or does it mean that once you encounter Jesus and you're an evangelist, you're serving in ministry, it's okay to continue with the men? We don't have the answer. The woman caught in adultery, we don't really know. Some suspect it might be a certain person, Mary, right? And later on, she follows Jesus as a disciple. But I think as a church, we have to help people understand this. 
so that they don't continue in a relationship just declaring only the grace of God. That if you have encountered the grace of God, then you will be changed by the goodness of His grace. So dear friends, the divorce dilemma. Yes or no? How we need the Holy Spirit. Amen? And I pray that this teaching has been helpful. I know it's been heavy. Ponder it. Study a little bit more. And may the Lord guide us by His Holy Spirit if and when we are called to minister in His name. Let's pray together. Lord, this has been a very difficult subject. And we confess, Lord, that it is easier if you had just told us, yes, we can or no, we cannot. But we know also and acknowledge that life does not happen so neatly in boxes that we can tick. And every individual is so different and our journeys can be so complicated sometimes. But Lord, I pray that you will fill us all with your Holy Spirit. That as much as we desire to stand upon your word and be guided, Lord, by Scripture, we have realized tonight it's not quite as straightforward. And so, Lord, we need your grace. We need you to teach us, O oh Lord. And for those who might be going through a difficulty in your relationship, or maybe you have come out of a divorce years back or even at this point in time, I just want to declare the grace of God that will be sufficient for you. That Jesus loves you. That Jesus accepts you. That you are precious. That you do not let anyone put you down. But as you encounter that, the love and the grace and the goodness of God, that you will have a change of heart. That you will change in your lifestyle. A change even in your thinking. Because encountering Jesus always results in a change. And go live for Him, serve Him, so that you can also help others with what you have gone through. And so as we close tonight, Lord, we want to thank You for teaching us and for guiding us and for gracing us and loving us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.